Welcome to the Alcohol Minimalist Podcast. I'm your host, Molly Watts. If you want to change your drinking habits and create a peaceful relationship with alcohol, you're in the right place. This podcast explores the strategies I use to overcome a lifetime of family alcohol abuse, more than 30 years of anxiety and worry about my own drinking, and what felt like an unbreakable daily drinking habit. Becoming an alcohol minimalist means removing excess alcohol from your life so it doesn't remove you from life. It means being able to take alcohol or leave it without feeling deprived. It means to live peacefully, being able to enjoy a glass of wine without feeling guilty and without needing to finish the bottle. With science on our side, we'll shatter your past patterns and eliminate your excuses. Changing your relationship with alcohol is possible. I'm here to help you do it. Let's start now. Well, hello and welcome or welcome back to the Alcohol Minimalist Podcast. With me, your host, Molly Watts, coming to you from, well, it's a very rain-soaked Oregon right now. We are under a flood watch. We have high wind warnings. It has been downpouring pretty much ever since Friday. And uh, some really strong weather coming in over the overnight, uh, both Friday night, Saturday night. And I heard from a friend that we have a convergence of three atmospheric rivers happening here in Oregon right now. I don't really know what an atmospheric river is, but it doesn't sound like it's going to be a very dry time anytime soon here in Oregon. So that's what's happening. How are you doing? Welcome to December. And I know there's a lot of thinking and a lot of thoughts that go into the holidays around alcohol. I want you to think about making plans ahead of time. Do that doable drink plan. Decide before you go to an event what you're going to be drinking, how much, and really use that logical prefrontal cortex to help guide your decisions that align with your long-term goals, right? I was just saying this in my group coaching over the weekend and to to a client actually on Friday as well. We can't achieve a goal of being an alcohol minimalist without drinking less, right? We got to drink less to be someone who drinks less alcohol. I know that sounds very awe-shocking, right? Really thunderstruck there by that simple phrase, but making a plan for what you're going to drink, prioritizing alcohol-free days, that's the way we end up being someone who at the end of the month in December has not drank as much as we, you know, as we might have. We want to sent our intentions to be able to drink less. It's absolutely possible, friends, for you to include alcohol in your life in a minimal way and to keep those levels low risk, to enjoy alcohol when you do go out to a party, be able to have a glass of wine, be able to have a beer, a a mixed drink, whatever it is, and then not overdo it. It is possible, I promise. Today on the show, I am super excited to share with you this conversation I had with Natalie McLean. Natalie is a wine critic, a journalist, and an author, and she has written a book recently that is quite different from some of her earlier work. And I'll tell you what it says. The book is called Wine Witch on Fire, and it is a powerful memoir about Natalie's 
life and career and at a time when she went through some really hard times. And this was maybe 10 years ago. But here's what it says. Natalie McLean, a best-selling wine writer, is shocked when her husband of 20 years, a high-powered CEO, demands a divorce. Her year gets even worse when an online mob of rivals comes for her career. Wavering between despair and determination, she must fight for her son, rebuild her career, and salvage her self-worth using her superpowers, heart, humor, and an uncanny ability to pair wine and food. Natalie questions her insider role in the slick marketing that encourages women to drink too much while she battles the wine world's veiled misogyny. Facing the worst vintage of her life, she reconnects with the vineyards that once brought her joy, the friends who sustain her, and her own belief in second chances. This true coming of middle age story is about transforming your life and finding love along the way. So this book is a memoir. It wasn't meant to be a self-help quit-lit book, but Natalie and I talk about that. It has kind of become that. And one of the things that I think is so awesome about what this conversation is about this drama that was happening to her and realizing that she was over drinking and how she went about changing that and how she still includes alcohol in her life. She still has a very centered career in wine. She has a podcast that she talks about. It's very well reviewed for recommendations on pairings of wine and things like that. But she's now somebody who understands and wants to include alcohol in her life in a minimal or moderate way. And she talks about this inside of the book, and she has some tips on ways of being moderate without having to be fully sober, right? So totally what we like to talk about here on the Alcohol Minimalist podcast. And she says, these are her tips. Number one, you have to deal with underlying issues. She had to deal with the depression from her divorce and anxiety from this online mobbing first. She had to take care of the the reasons that she was turning to alcohol to numb herself, right? We have to understand our mental health and what's happening. Number two, she says, pause and ask, what was the thought right before the thought that said, I need a glass of wine? If it's about stress, find a different way to deal with it. Take a walk, have a bath, etc. Sound familiar? If you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, I've talked about the PB&J tool, pause and ponder. We want to understand our thinking because it is our thinking, our thoughts that fuel our desire to drink alcohol. And it's those thoughts that need to be challenged, right? Do you really need a glass of wine? No, you want to relax. There's a difference. Her third tip, pour half a full bottle of wine into an empty half bottle and save it for more mindful drinking. So basically split the bottle in two and put one away, right? These are tips. We, we talk about doing things like that all around, around here all the time. Uh, she says, drink one glass of water for every glass of wine to stay hydrated. Always good to drink your water. And her last one is make low and no alcohol wines part of your repertoire. Those of you that have been here again for a while know that non-alcoholic drinks are something that I strongly believe helped me change my 30 plus year daily drinking habit, um, maybe 25 plus years. Anyways, long-term decades of a daily drinking pattern and non-alcoholic drinks are absolutely not going to lead you down the path of overdrinking. They are going to lead you to not overdrinking. So this garbage that some of the recovery industry tells you that it's a trigger. No, it is something that is a tool. 
if you use it correctly and if your mindset is appropriate for how you are incorporating using non-alcoholic beverages in your life. So again, that was a tip from, from Natalie's book. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. I certainly enjoyed having her on the show. All of the links to the book, to all of her work will be in the show notes. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Natalie McLean. Good morning, Natalie. Thank you so much for being here on the Alcohol Minimalist Podcast. I just cannot wait to have this conversation and I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, I, I'm I'm so pleased to be here with you, Molly. I just think we're soul sisters when it comes to wine and alcohol in terms of where you're coming from and the message that I'm trying to get out with my latest book. Which is kind of impressive and, uh, and at the same time curious, right? Because your history, your legacy, what the career that you've had over decades has been all about teaching people about wine and in your previous books, maybe even kind of celebrating over drinking to some degree. Would mm -hmm. you that? Absolutely. Well, the first, uh, the title of my first book was Red, White and Drunk All Over, That's subtitled funny. A Wine-Soaked Journey from Grape to Glass. Number two was Unquenchable, A Tipsy Search for the World's Best Bargain oh. Wines. And of course, this one is Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Defamation and Drinking Too Much. So it's almost like a trilogy and a journey right there in the titles. Right? But yes, I used to make my over-drinking habits fodder for humor but now I'm really hoping they'll fuel a discussion on overdrinking, particularly as it relates to women. But I think it's it's a relevant discussion for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. We just actually this last month here on Alcohol Minimalist, we talked about doing November as no binge November, really mm. just in a way to help educate people even on what a binge by definition looks like and understanding because so much of what I talk about is just helping people really understand. And I think for you too, during this process, so this book takes place more than more than 10 years ago now, right? In time, exactly. in real time. The process that you went through during that year, a kind of this awareness and an enlightenment in your own mind, did digging into the science of alcohol and understanding kind of the true definitions of what moderate drinking looks like, did they surprise you? Did you, I mean, was it like, and you're like, oh, huh, this is not me. Right. Well, yeah, there's a lot of factors coming into play. Um, so alcoholism runs in my family and my relatives like to joke that the moth, that being me, likes to fly a little too close to the flame when they see mm -hmm. what I do for a living. Um, but, you know, the the whole um, my problem with wine or over drinking really um, focused, as you said, about a decade ago. Um, I call it my no good, terrible, very bad vintage personally and professionally. Right. And in response to two um, big issues, a sudden divorce from a husband of 20 years and an online mobbing on social media, right. in response to those issues, depression and anxiety, I started drinking too much. I mean, I had easy access to wine. I had the cloak of professional or respectability of always right. having a wine glass in my hand. It was almost de rigueur. Um, so I really did, as you say, Molly, had to dig down into not just the science of, of um, over drinking, but also why was I doing it? Um, yeah. You know, what? Okay, they, 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 there were these big issues in my life. So that's pretty obvious. But I was in therapy and still am to, the, to this day. I'm a big proponent of it. But what I found is that 
the first step was dealing with those underlying issues, the depression and the anxiety. And then my need for, you know, that thought, I need a drink, yeah. really subsided substantially. But, you know, we, those therapy sessions were in the book. Early readers are finding them very helpful. It wasn't meant to be a self-help book, but it's kind of turned out to be that. Um, yeah. But I, ha I share a lot of other tips in the book as well. Yeah. You just said something that is music to my ears. You may not realize it, but I we talk a lot about how our thoughts fuel our feelings and drive our actions around here. So thoughts, feelings, actions, and that very sneaky little thought of I need a drink. I mm. actually share that in my own book about how the realization that 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 thought was there, I need as opposed to I want or anything right. else and how that that thought I need fueled my desire to drink and how changing that and how realizing like, oh, wait a second, that thought isn't actually true. What I, what I want is to feel relaxed. Yes. And I am seeking that in this, this glass of alcohol. Right. Exactly. And, and those words like, yeah, like need and deserve and they're, right? they have the bitter edge of someone's not appreciating you or you're not appreciating yourself. And so you're reaching out for something you think will solve that, but it, right. it actually won't. And, and that is also one of the tips. What was the thought just before yeah, the yeah. thought that said, I need a drink? Yeah. I saw that you know? in your, in, in those notes and I thought, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're doing exactly what I talk to people all about here all the time is we got to figure out the why behind why we're drinking so many people. And I'm sure you had this thought for a long time was, well, I just really like wine right? Mm. I just really mm -hmm. like it. Like, I love the taste of a good, of a good, you know, right. That's like the storyline. And so they feel like that's the reason that they drink is because I just love it. And then you realize, and I think this happened for you during that terrible, horrible, bad vintage year, you realized that this idea that you really loved it, you didn't love what was happening as a mm -hmm. result of over drinking. No, you know, it's, it's, it, I compare it to, you know, there's a reason we don't eat an entire chocolate cake, even though we may feel like doing that sometimes, right? right? It, it actually, not only is it not good for us, not healthy for us, but in the end, near the end of that cake or halfway through, it doesn't even taste good. We're just doing it to numb, drown, whatever out those yeah. feelings. And, you know, whereas I've been in beautiful settings, restaurants where you get just the right amount, the right serving of, of the cake. And it's wonderful. You slow down, you savor it. I mean, there's a reason that wine isn't served in shooter glasses and you just knock it back. It truly is meant to be the drink of conversation, to be savored for its sensory pleasures over dinner with friends. Um, and that's why we have, you know, different shaped wine glasses for different wines. Yeah. What I think you captured right there, and I think is something that is a thread that goes throughout this book, we talk a lot about the, the, the narrative around alcohol is you're either somebody who can drink or you cannot drink and should not drink. And so there is like this black and white, yes. good and bad, right and wrong culture around it. Mm -hmm. And very little conversation about some of the the true positive social interactions that people have when they're enjoying a glass of wine, right? It's not, there is absolutely some reasons that people choose to include alcohol in their lives in a minimal, in a minimal way that are, that are beneficial for us in a mm -hmm. social way. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that you, when you decided, I mean, was it because you were in the wine industry and you had 
I mean, a, a very uh, realistic business mindset that said, well, I can't stop drinking altogether. Or mm. was it something that you really just like, no, I really, I want to explore this. I think the opportunity is there to drink less and mm -hmm. be able to do that. I asked my therapist point blank, because as I said, alcoholism runs in my family. So I just said, should I, should I go sober? Should I become sober? And she said, well, let's explore harm reduction first, because mm. I think going sober completely um, is punitive, especially for my career. I, I would have to find another career, yeah. but, but I'm not going to ruin my health for my career. So I was open to that possibility of just no more drinking. Um, but she said also in her experience as a therapist, she said, usually telling someone outright to go cold turkey on whatever it is they're doing often is ineffective. It's definitely the right way for some people who have hit rock bottom, have a medical condition, whatever. But she said in your situation, because every situation is different, um, let's see if we can develop some techniques. Now that we've sort of dealt with the depression and anxiety, let's get down to some more specific techniques. And yes, you're absolutely right, Molly. There's just, I don't find there's any discussion in the, that middle ground. There's sober curious, dry January, and then there's you have a problem. And there's a lot of shaming too about over drinking or whatever. Like I know when I when I went out um, for dinner with girlfriends um, years back, and it was the first time I didn't have a glass of wine, I ordered water. They said, you're pregnant. Right, right. So, you know, that's the assumption. You're either pregnant, you have a problem with alcohol, or perhaps there's a religious reason, but there can be nothing else. <laughs> and let's, right? I, I really do want to help others like me who love wine, but want to have a good relationship with it to find that middle ground. I and again, that is exactly what I do around here, I hope. And I think one of the, the, the problems is, is that a lot of people don't understand what the, the middle area is and what, you know, they're looking for, they're seeking for the answer of what is a healthy relationship with wine. And so we talk a lot about low risk limits around here. And, but one thing that you mentioned there in that conversation was the going out with, with friends, with women and the, when you don't have a drink, people like, yes, are you pregnant? But let's talk a little bit about the messaging that is delivered around wine for women, because mm -hmm. it is a big part of your book and it is super important, not only in your own history in the wine industry, which I think for people that are going to read this book, you're really good at, your eyes are going to be very opened wide about some of the, you know, what we may perceive as a glamorous industry right? Mm -hmm. Some of the, yes. that's peeled back a little bit in this book for sure. Let's talk about messaging and the narrative. And how do you feel about that with regards to women in terms of where you've been with how you might've perpetuated some of that messaging early on in your career and how you feel about it now? Sure. So yes, uh, I have a marketing background, so I love the marketing angle. Um, when it comes to wine, just as a sort of an interesting cultural phenomenon. Um, but in Wine Witch on Fire, I talk about that um, women represent one of the fastest growing segments. I mean, we've always been household purchasers of just about everything from shreddies to SUDs. <laughs> and we buy the majority of wine that comes into the household. Um, now we drink the majority of it, 66% of it. But the marketing message that I find some companies are using or 
portraying is that we're wallets, not women. We're cash cows, literally, who will drink the cutesy, pink bow tie, high heel kind of <laughs> crappy wines um, mm. that men would not drink. And, you know, we subsidize the more artisanal, complex wines that are marketed toward men. And the message on the bottle, Molly, is that on some bottles is that we're either babes or battle axes. So we're either reaching for those brands that have um, short black dresses, red lipstick, because it's girls night out or it's a spa day or whatever, or we're going for labels like Mad Housewife um, with taglines, dinner be damned, just to try to obliviate another day of motherhood and exhaustion. Again, there's no middle ground. Um, or respectful stories when it comes to those narratives and those labels. And I think, you know, on one level, as you know, there's a lot of laugh out loud memes and jokes on social media, you know, wine is to women as duct tape is to men. And, you know, okay. But I think if we dig a, a level deeper on labels that profit from a feeling of powerlessness or thanklessness, it's a more it's it's a, it's a message we need to to really question uh, when it comes to women, because yeah. the message the first message is that we need a reason to have a glass of wine. It's got to be celebratory or with gals night out or whatever. No one asks a man why he wants a drink. He has one because he wants one. And then on a deeper level level, it's no one's thanking mom or the woman. So mom will thank herself to a drink and then another one and then another one. Right. And, you know, you alluded to this, but in the book, I say, you know, I wasn't a bystander in this labeling game or the LOL memes. I was team captain. I called my glass of wine at 5 p.m. mommy's little helper. Mm. And, you know, oh, yeah, LOL. But there is a, a tinge of bitterness there, too. And I think I had to question my own place in this whole marketing game. You know, right. was I in enabling others to feel good about they're over drinking. Was I bringing more pleasure or pain into the world, not just through my own habits, but what I was encouraging others, especially women to do? Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that because I think that too is just so valuable for people to hear. And it is one of the things that we can't escape is the narrative that is going to be continued on around us because you talked about it a little bit too, in terms of just the industry, but there's, there's, and, and how uh, that impacts you in terms of, or impacted you in the side of this book was this online, you know, attack on you in terms of your credibility as, which your, is your source of income. I mean, that's a big deal. And the, the stakeholders in these conversations, right? The alcohol industry themselves, all of the people that just like you, the wine critics, everyone has a stake in writing this narrative and we need to to be careful about how we are positioning that especially to women you mm -hmm. talked about it in the book and i was wondering about this because the timing of when you wrote this book is notably like i said it was more than a decade ago that this actually took place did the timing of the of the and i don't know when you started writing but the timing of the pandemic which we saw huge increases in women's consumption of wine and a, a narrative that really started to shift, especially for women during that time. Did that impact your decision to write this book when you did? And 
I know that it, again, some of this just you, you, I think you make a comment about right from a scar, not from an open wound that, you know, at the end of your book. And I think that's, there's probably, there was some time in healing that needed to take place before you were ready to write this book. But did that influence you at all too? Just the timing of, of what we've seen in terms of women's, women's consumption? Yes. So even though the events in this book took place a decade ago, before Me Too, before Harvey Weinstein and others, I think the the issues and the the situation is more relevant today than it even yeah. was back then. During the pandemic, you know, there's been various studies released, but women, especially women with children, um, increased their alcohol consumption something like 323% versus just just 39% for the overall population. And I think we gave that overconsumption culturally a pass. Everyone was just trying to cope with all of the added roles and stressors of not being able to go out, being confined in a bubble, worried about everybody's health. Um, but I think now that we've emerged from the pandemic, and I hope that remains the case, I think we're re-examining, okay, a lot changed, and a lot of people did not recalibrate to pre-pandemic levels of drinking. They just kept going with it. Right. And, um, you know, wine mom culture is a whole other phenomenon that had always been there, but really came on strong during the pandemic. So, yes, it did influence um, my desire to write Wine Witch on Fire because I thought, I think we need to change the conversation and try to examine those assumptions that you know, that those crutches we were all using um, during the pandemic, um, you know, it, it it's not serving us well. And, um, you know, it didn't 10 years ago for me, but a lot of people, you know, experienced the same thing, but in a different situation um, during the pandemic. And I think we all need to kind of wake up and smell the, yeah, <laughs> the right. roses or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things, yeah. And I think that that what I love about this book. So first of all, like you said, this wasn't written to be a self-help book. This is a, a memoir, but what I love about the fact, especially coming at it from the angle that, that I talk about, right. Which is drinking less, being able to include alcohol in your life in a minimal way and understanding what drives your over drinking habits and whether it's over drinking in a binge way or on a, just on a daily basis and that you can't, you know, when you're drinking three to, to a half a bottle of wine every night, you're over drinking. I mean, that's the mm -hmm. bottom line. And sure. so we have to be willing to explore all of that. And the, the book is a, a synopsis of, like you said, this year that was really terrible. And during that year of really hard stuff, life stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You managed to work on your relationship with alcohol and change it for the better. And that is something that I want people to understand because that's really what this, this book kind of does. It takes you through that journey, right? right? I hear it from people all the time. Like, well, I want to, but I just, you know, I want to change, but I've got this going on or that going on or, you know, and life's just so sure. hard and it's the holidays and et cetera, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have to yeah. be willing to take a turn and dive into this work right away because every day that we don't do it is just a day that we're we're still spending it in an over drinking pattern which is just not not a healthy way to live your life Excellent, yeah and basically. and every little bit helps molly so right. you know my right. journey that year was not linear it wasn't like right. okay 
I need to like fix this drinking problem. And then by the end, I could tie it up with a shiny red bow. It was all forward, forward motion. No, it wasn't. It was forward and back. And right. then, you know, and it's, it's like, you know, but, but begin today, begin at least with the questions. It's like say, saying, I'm not going to buy that new dress until I lose 10 pounds. How about buying the dress starting today and then right. feeling good about how you look and then perhaps that I'm just trying to make a rough analogy here. Maybe you feel good about yourself and it becomes easier to start watching your diet or whatever you're doing. But I encourage people to to think about it. It's not all or nothing. Just like it's not all or nothing between sobriety and over drinking. The journey itself is not all or nothing. Just start with wherever you're at. Make some progress. Know there'll be setbacks. Don't be so hard on yourself because that's what keeps us from making progress. Slip up. It's human. Fail. Start over again. It's the starting over again that will really, in the end, get you to where you want to be with with wine, with alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. I, I tell people all the time that the secret to uh, getting there faster is to keep going. I mean, there's exactly. no getting there faster. You just got to keep going. You got to get yourself back up. You got to learn from your, be willing to be curious and compassionate with yourself, understand what happened and use it as a reason to, to show up differently next time. When we, when we do that and small steps lead to those big wins, it's every single step, small steps along the way. And there's no better time than starting than right now. Your life isn't going to get easier. Trust me. It's not going to get, you know, things aren't going to just get rosy better just because you wish they were. It, it takes action and you can actually do it during the midst of crisis, which is absolutely you talk about in that, I you mean, can. which is kind of what the book is. Yeah. It, it, it's never ideal. And, and during the holidays, it can be particularly trying, but you know, some of the other tips I share Molly is like, have a pregame plan. So, you know, if I, we call it the doable, we call it the doable drink plan around here. Oh, I love it. I love it. I have got to binge binge listen to your podcast. Exactly. Better binge listen. Yeah. (laughs) So if I go to a restaurant, I'll know what my personal limit is, which is two, you know, five ounce glasses of wine if we're going out over a couple hours. And then immediately I'm going to ask for um, some chamomile tea. So that, you know, if, if the meal is still going on or whatever, I've got something I'm sipping on. I'm not, you know, sitting there twiddling my thumbs or whatever. You know, I've, I've got a plan, um, you know, at home, you know, if I'm having a dinner party, I'm alternating a glass of wine with a glass of water. So there's all kinds of little techniques or I'm, I'm mixing into the repertoire low and no alcohol wine. So I still, because sometimes it's just the act of drinking, sipping, you know, it's why we love tea and coffee sure. and Yeah. Yeah, So sometimes it's just that it's not that you actually are craving the alcohol itself that you you want to get smashed, but you know, you're being social, everybody's still raising and lowering glasses. So get something else in your glass. And and I Uh, think you'd be surprised about at how effective that can be too. Oh, 100%. Hey, everyone, just a quick break to talk with you about Sunnyside. Now, you've heard me mention Sunnyside many times before. You've heard me talk with Nick and Ian, the founders of Sunnyside. And I just want to share with you why I am so passionate about this company. They are way more than just a drink tracking app. They are really about helping people create a mindful relationship with alcohol. And they stand for a life that is about having more 
not less, right? There are more rested mornings, more days when you're feeling your absolute best, when you have more energy and positivity. Sunnyside is not there to tell you to never go out, to never drink, but they are there to help you enjoy your life and to wake up and be ready to be your shining best. It is not an all or nothing approach. It is friendly, it is approachable, and it is absolutely judgment free. They want to be a solution that fits into your unique lifestyle. And I think that's exactly what they've created. You can register for a free 15 day trial. Go to www.sunnyside.co slash minimalist to get started. That's www.sunnyside.co slash minimalist to try Sunnyside today. I got to ask because people will want to know one of the the challenges that people complain about is non-alcoholic wines. They really feel like there's no good ones out there. Do you have any recommendations for low alcohol, no alcohol wines while I have a wine critic on the show, folks? (laughs) Sure. So when it comes to low alcohol, you want to look for cool climates like Germany and Riesling. That's a grape that's harvested early. Germany is a very cool climate. So those Rieslings are going to be maybe 8% alcohol versus you can get some Australian Shirazes that come in at 14 and 15%, almost double the the amount of alcohol. So look for cool climates. There are even cool pockets like in California, Carneros, Sonoma, and so on. You're going to find on average that the alcohol levels are lower. When it comes to no alcohol, there's a whole new world out there. It's not those sorry cooking wines, those neutered cooking wines of yore. And even a lot of wineries are now making no alcohol wines. So they make them in the process, same process, same care that they would make their alcohol wines, based wines, but then, you know, they remove the alcohol. So they're well-made, they're tasty. There are so many websites specializing in this. Um, I think what I would love to do for this, Molly, is send you some wines for the show notes so that those listening, yeah, yeah, can get the links directly to say five or six of my favorite no alcohol wines. um, rather than trying to rhyme them off by heart right now. That's (laughs) that's perfect. No, that's excellent. I would love that. We will put that in there. And I, so tell me on, how do you feel about this? Because some people, some people ask me about these questions all the time. So other tricks that people use is to, of course, like make a spritzer, right? So that's a way of reducing alcohol or, you know, making a a glass of wine, a lower by alcohol, alcohol by volume. Um, Also sometimes in, for me, as sometimes I drink, beer more than wine typically a lot of times, but I will split a non-alcoholic beer with a, with a, an IPA and that's I a great idea. IPA. Yeah. Right. And it yeah. reduces yeah. So with a glass of wine, pour some non-alcoholic wine in and, mm-hmm. you know, splash in the real stuff and you're already immediately lowering the alcohol by volume and you could still potentially get the, the taste of that full-bodied wine that you might like. Absolutely. And I do something in restaurants even that would horrify wine snobs, Uh, especially in the summer. I will put like two or three ice cubes in a refreshing white wine and that's going to water it down too. Now I'm not doing it in fancy, you know, expensive wines, but you know, if I've just got an everyday Sauvignon Blanc or whatever it is, it cools down the the wine itself, but it it's so marvelous because it really, um, you know, doesn't change the taste substantially 
uh, for a, you know a moderately priced wine. I don't think you need to worry about that. And I'm officially giving you and your listeners your license to chill. Don't worry about those snobs. Just put an <laughs> ice cube in it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is really good information for all of you wine snobs to hear from, uh, would you, uh, Natalie, are you, would you consider yourself a previous or are you still a wine snob? A reformed snob. Um, I was, a, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> a reformed writing snob. I don't know if I ever was a wine snob because I've always felt like an enthusiastic amateur, uh -huh. but you know, I've been in this game for more than 20 years and I've you know, been recognized for my writing with awards and so on. So yeah. I, I am confident of my expertise, uh -huh. um, but yeah, no, I think um, I will try to stay on the side of enthusiastic uh, wine lovers rather than uh, going over to that very, very small field over there of snobs. <laughs> okay. And here's what I would like you to hear, listeners, is that if a an enthusiastic wine critic can find non-alcoholic wines that she actually enjoys, I'm pretty sure that you can too. Absolutely. Because that is one of the stories that people love to hang on to. And I, and I, I understand it. Some of it is a learning process, right? Because when mm -hmm. you, I mean, when you first are, are trying non-alcoholic beverages, whether it's wine, spirits, or, or beer, you've got to like, you're, you got to let your taste buds adjust to it because at first you're going to be like, Oh, this doesn't taste like my, right. Right. It's not going to taste exactly the same, but and open your okay. mind and your taste right. buds. Yeah. Because in the last three years, even the explosion in great tasting, non-alcoholic wines, beers and spirits will astound you and, and websites dedicated to just those kinds of drinks. And I also really like the fact that you mentioned chamomile tea. One mm -hmm. of the things I, I've heard from, especially from wine drinkers, is a really good steeped glass of tea actually mm -hmm. has a lot of tannin in it and can be very, yes. um, you know, very appealing to mm -hmm. a wine drinker. But I love the fact that you talked about that. So we have a plan ahead of time. We go yes. in, we have two, you know, our two glasses of wine, and we have a plan to have a glass of tea thereafter. It's like, mm -hmm. that is a part of the plan too. And that is how we build success. Tell me, this is one of the things that I think I hear in that black and white, you can or you can't conversation about planning, right? Mm -hmm. People that are sober only insist that having to make a plan ahead of time and having to do this kind of mental uh, planning or mental constraint around alcohol is really fatiguing and it's hard and it would just be easier to not drink at all. That's the mm -hmm. mindset. Like it's just mm -hmm. easier. Like, sure. like I tell people all the time, it doesn't, it's not hard at all. I don't understand that for me. It's just, just like you wouldn't go into, uh, eat to, you know, you wouldn't go in with a plan of eating three pieces of chocolate cake. You don't go in having a plan to, to overdrink, you know, you just have a plan ahead of time. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And again, for some people, that's what they need. Uh, that mental rest of no, no drinks at all. Um, it's kind of like people who dress in black every day. There's nothing wrong right. with that, but I like right. variety in my life. I <laughs> like planning. I like anticipating, you know, a beautiful tasting Pinot Noir or whatever. That gives me joy. It doesn't mentally fatigue me. And then the other point too, Molly, that often comes up is, well, if you're measuring and you're planning, that's a sure sign you've got a problem. Right. I don't think so. It's like planning your workouts or planning your wardrobe or anything else. Uh, it's not a sure sign. It's, it's just, it's, it's a sure sign that you want 
control over your life that you want, you know, a vacation that doesn't end in misery because you forgot to plan some plane transfers or whatever. I think that's false reasoning. Um, and, you know, I even woven through this book as well is the witch theme. Um, yep. A lot of people think if they hear the title Wine Witch on Fire and they think this must be about an angry woman who drinks a lot of <laughs> wine and owns a lot of cats, but it's not. Um, but I, there's lots of humor and a happy ending. Um, but people think, uh, you know, in the olden days, a witch, like I, I have all this sort of history, but they would th throw a woman, poor woman, into um, a lake or a pond. And if she floated, then that was a sure sign she was a witch because witches were said to reject the, the sacrament of baptism. But if she sank, then of course she was she was not a witch. So you either drowned or you floated and were a witch and then were dragged to the stake to be burned. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right? And it's like, can we get out of, again, it's binary thinking, black and white. Let's find that middle ground. Planning is just fine. And one of the things that I talk about here a lot, which is, I think, so important, and I hope, and I know you will agree with, the biggest impact that we can have and the most benefit that we can do is not drinking, not the 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 change from drinking seven to 10 drinks a week down to zero. It's from drinking 30 to 40 drinks per week mm. down to seven to 10. Yes. It's, that's where we can impact people. That's where Huge. the real value is, is that it, and it's those people that are drinking up at that higher level that may not understand how much they have to gain from mm -hmm. drinking less. Mm -hmm. Talk to yeah. me a little bit about that in your own life. What benefits have you found from being a mindful drinker, being somebody who plans ahead, having not, you know, not having episodes of over drinking? Mm -hmm. What does that mean for you in your own life? so many benefits. I mean, it's, um, I've mentioned one and that is slowing down and actually savoring wine. That was, that was my starting position when I first started writing about wine, when I first started even just drinking it, I didn't get into any sort of alcohol till my late twenties. So, but, and I didn't like beer and whiskey. It was too bitter for me. Um, but I loved wine cause it, I didn't find it to be the same way. Um, but the benefits apart from savoring it are, not waking up at the witching hour of 3 a.m. because it really wreaks havoc on your sleep. We all think, you know, a, a nightcap is a way to fall asleep. Sure, it will relax you. And then as your body processes it, it's going to bring you up out of your sleep sometime in the middle of the night. It'll elevate your heart rate. It'll make you sweat um, perhaps a little bit. So better sleep, better sleep trans translates directly to better mood. Um, being able to get more um, done in my productive workday, being nicer <laughs> to the people around me and not snapping. Um, it saved me money for sure in terms of not buying so much wine, either for home consumption or restaurants. Uh, I mean, it, there's just, it really has changed my life in a variety of ways. Um, and And when I'm not going to a restaurant and trying to anesthetize myself right up front, for the social situation at hand, I kind of come down, relax, come back into my body because, you know, I need a drink is all up in my head. I need a drink. I need a drink. Mm -hmm. Relax down into my body, even put my, my hand on my heart and say, get reconnected here and 
try to just be with these people for who they are. There's going to be boring spots in the conversation. There's going to be times maybe you feel a little like you don't like the conversation. You know, there's going to be all sorts of things, but you don't need to drown that out with another glass of wine. You can be here, really be here with these people. I love that. And I know you talk about that in the book about connection and how it's ironic because so many of us think that we're drinking in these social settings to enhance connection. But yet yeah. then when we overdrink, we are actually taking ourselves further and further away from what we set out to do in the beginning. And that idea, and I talk about that here all the time too. It's the, it's, it's what we believe about alcohol versus what the reality is in terms mm -hmm. of what we are experiencing when we overdrink. And mm -hmm. we have to be willing to separate that story out in our brains and really challenge those old ideas and those beliefs with a new set of what is actually, you know, this is actually what, what I want to do. This is actually, and then when you allow yourself to really sink into that and to be there and to focus on the relationships and to remind yourself, oh, I, I enjoy spending time with this person. It isn't the alcohol, but I actually, you know, or to your point, sometimes you're going to go, oh, you know what? This is kind of boring and that's okay. I can do boring. I can allow boring to be here for a minute and I don't yeah. have to drink myself and, you know, to, to not, to, to drink over it, to not feel this and experience it. Exactly. And two more benefits I just thought of. There's probably an even longer list, but I lost weight uh -huh. <laughs> because, you know, the body preferentially will burn alcohol before it will burn fat. So if you're not um, putting as much alcohol into your body, it's going to burn more fat and just overall calories. Um, but also shame. Um, you know, there were times when I didn't remember certain parts of an evening with friends. Mm -hmm. Those are blackouts. That's when the, the alcohol is overwhelming your brain. Mm -hmm. And to have to get up the next morning and ask my partner, did I say anything stupid? Did I do anything stupid? It's just, it's so shameful. It's so like, I'm ashamed of myself. Um, so no more of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, the, the shame aspect is something that we do talk about a lot as well. And, and it's one of those, those consequences of over drinking that we have to be willing to like, you know, look at it with curiosity and, and, and compassion with ourselves. Yes, and then, that's true. But being able to move forward from that and understand yeah. that there's an opportunity here to not have yeah. that happen, you know, Absolutely. And that's, that you have that capacity to do it. Another part, and I just, and I know we, we will wrap up because I could probably talk to you all day and we'd have a really long conversation. I would love that sometime. <laughs> it is great. But, um, so one of the things I get from people all the time too, or, you know, critics of this line of thinking that moderation is possible, that mindful drinking is possible. They will say to me, well, yeah, but then once you start drinking people, you've got this plan, this doable drink plan, but what happens when you start drinking and you're no longer being logical, you're no longer using that prefrontal cortex. And, you know, it's just very easy to not stick to a plan. So again, therefore, if we just don't ever drink, it's, we don't have that, we don't have that conundrum of, having to stick to a plan when it's, when our, when our brain's no longer logical. Mm -hmm. Tell me your thoughts on that. Well, certainly alcohol does lower your inhibitions. Right. And um, <laughs> some of the most embarrassing things I've ever said were after three or four glasses of wine. Um, 
you know, I think that still that game plan, knowing you still have it in mind because you made it before you had your first sip, that's still going to help. Even when your inhibitions are lowered, you can remember, I made this plan. Why? Because of all those reasons, all those benefits. Future Nat is going to thank me when she gets up tomorrow. I want to arrive tomorrow morning in a state where I can get up and write as opposed to get up and go, Ugh, I need an Advil. Um so I think that can help. And then, you know, I have a very good and loving partner. Even I did go through divorce, but I met a wonderful man and he is my wingman in every sense. So it's not that he's, you know, policing my alcohol. He's very gentle and not judgmental. In fact, he, he's amazing uh, because I used to do something what I, which I call pre-drinking, which is a misnomer, but I would have a glass of wine before we went to a restaurant uh -huh. just so that, you know, I could be loosened up more than everybody else. And then cumulatively, the amount I was drinking was just got to be too much quicker than anybody else. And he told me, please see if you can not do that so that it, and he wasn't saying it in a judgmental shaming way he was saying i want to be on the same plane as you i want to have have the same experience i think he would have almost been willing to have a glass of wine with me before we went out but then we both realized we're just both going to have way too much wine so i love him for that so if you have someone in your life who can be a support person who can just gently put their hand on your thigh or whatever, or just a signal or anything. I think that sort of community support in whatever form it might take uh, can also be helpful, especially after glass one or two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing of it is, and I say this to people all the time, yes, it may be harder. It's certainly not impossible. Every right. single person I've ever spoken to, I've said, has there ever been a time when you've had two glasses or two beers or two anything and stopped and they'll say, Oh yeah, of course I've had that, you know, that that's happened. So if it has happened, then we know it can happen. Then it yes. is possible. There's no, you know, and this again is just the, the idea that we cannot incorporate alcohol into our lives in a mindful way is mm -hmm. something that I am going to keep working to make sure that people hear it is possible. You can do this and you should want to do it in a way that aligns with long-term health goals that really, that have science backed behind them, because there is true science. Ladies, there is ample reason to, to drink less in your life. I, I, I mean, that is true. Ladies and gentlemen, 100%. Yeah. There's, there's a, an Absolutely. abundance of reasons. Yeah. And, you know, I also, um, I share very openly in this, in Wine Witch on Fire, um, I have been and still am on Zoloft, which is an antidepressant. Mm -hmm. And um, another benefit is that alcohol is a depressant. So it will dampen and decrease what that drug is trying to do for you. Right, right. And it's dangerous anyway to mix drugs and alcohol, especially immoderately. And everyone needs to go talk to their doctor. This is not medical advice. But I didn't realize that at first. That why, mm -hmm. you know, I'm taking these antidepressants. Why do I <laughs> so still feel down? Working, right. Yeah, exactly. What's wrong with this? I need another prescription. But, you know, so I found as I backed off the alcohol, my mood lifted exponentially because not only was I not having this depressant in alcohol, but it was allowing the drug to do what it's supposed to do, the medicine, I should say. Um, and then yet one more benefit, because I'll just throw one more in, you get your nights back. So after two glasses of wine, I'm not asleep on the sofa. 
I get my night back. I used to say, oh, I have no time to read. By the time I go to bed, I'm too tired to read. Well, no, it wasn't you were too tired. Your brain was marinated. And so you fell asleep. And that's why you couldn't read. So being honest about that, but getting my nights back was another huge benefit. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree with all of it. I know part of your your work in terms of bringing this book to life is you've actually been doing some writer's workshops and helping people who want to write a book. I always say I wrote a book too. You, you can't write a book if you're over drinking at night. It just, yes. that, that's never going to happen. I mean, no. I don't know about you, but at least it would have <laughs> never happened for me. That's true. And it's a false misconception that some of the greatest writers who have been alcoholics, it was the alcohol that was helping them. It was not, you know, <laughs> they perhaps could have been more productive or whatever, but that's just a, an, a romantic um, illusion. Uh, it yeah. really does not help the creativity muse. Natalie McLean, let's tell people where they can pick up Wine Witch on Fire. Sure. So you can get it wherever books are sold. So every online retailer, you know, from Amazon to Barnes and Noble to all. Also, please support your local independent bookstores. Um, whether they have it in stock or not, they can always order it for you online. Um, I will be soon recording the audio version of this book. So it'll be out nice. next year. But it's available now as paperback or ebook. And if you need any information or links to all those retailers, it's on my website, uh, winewitchonfire.com. We'll take you right to where all the retailers are. Also, I have lots of bonuses for those who do buy yeah. the book from signed book plates to online wine tastings to all, all, all kinds of goodies. Yeah. Yeah. We will link that in the show notes, folks, of course. And again, and Natalie's going to also provide us with some non-alcoholic wine options that'll be in the show notes as well. Sure. Natalie McLean, thank you so very much for being here today. I really appreciate it. This is just a fantastic conversation. I hope we can talk again because I think we probably could cover even more and I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, Molly, thank you for your interest. I, I'm so glad you reached out. You're doing a really important service here with the message that's on this podcast. I think there's not enough of this conversation happening. So thank you for including uh, me in it. And you asked some terrific questions. And definitely we need to carry on a much longer conversation over one glass of wine, maybe two. That's yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Thank All you. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Alcohol Minimalist Podcast. Take something you learned from this episode and put it into action this week. Changing your drinking habits and creating a peaceful relationship with alcohol is 100% possible. You can stop worrying, stop feeling guilty about over drinking and become someone who desires alcohol less. Come join me in making peace with alcohol. It's my six-month online course and group coaching program designed to help you build sustainable change. Give me six months and I'll help you create peace. Check it out at www.mollywatts.com slash join. That's Molly with a Y and Watts with an S dot com slash join. Come join me today.